Welcome to this special edition of the Strategy Driven Podcast, an interview with Victoria Grady, author of The Pivot Point, Success in Organizational Change. On behalf of the entire Strategy Driven team, I would like to welcome you to this special edition of the Strategy Driven Podcast, an interview with Victoria Grady, author of The Pivot Point, Success in Organizational Change. The Strategy Driven Podcast focuses on the tools and techniques executives and managers can use to improve their organization's alignment and accountability to ultimately achieve superior results. These podcasts elaborate on the best practice and warning flag articles found on the Strategy Driven website at www.strategydriven.com. In this special edition podcast, Victoria Grady shares with us her insights on the psychology behind employees' resistance to change and the actions leaders can take to more effectively move their organization to a state of high post-change productivity. So now, without any further delays, let's get started. We are privileged to be joined by Victoria Grady, author of The Pivot Point, Success in organizational change. Victoria is an assistant professorial lecturer in the Department of Organizational Science within the Columbian School of Arts and Sciences at the George Washington University. Her consulting practice includes federal government institutions, nonprofit organizations, and private sector companies. Victoria, welcome to the Strategy Driven Podcast. Thanks, Nathan. I'm really excited to be a part of your show. I love your book, The Pivot Point. I found it absolutely fascinating. So I have been very much looking forward to our conversation. Great. Me too. Victoria, to start out with, I'd like to set some context for our audience. Now, I've read a lot of different books on change management and have been personally involved in the change management process for several very large-scale projects. But I have to be honest, I was truly fascinated by the concepts in your book, and and they were very different than what I had read about or, or had thought of myself before, particularly on how individuals react to change. So, What I hoped to do was to start with, ask you if you would describe for our audience the underlying psychology that you see as driving employees' resistance to change. Sure, that's a great place to start too, Nathan. Um, Basically, this goes back to research that was originally conducted back 40 and 50 years ago um, that looked at how individuals respond after an object Uh, and that object can be tangible or intangible, uh, that they lean on for support or 
they expect to be there if that object is removed and what happens to the individual upon removal of that object. And so what we've done is we have looked at, at resistance to change and, and specifically at resistance to change um, for about 11 years. And, and what we've come to find is that we don't believe that it's resistance to change at all, quite frankly, mm-hmm. that it is, in fact, resistance to the inconvenience of losing the object that you inherently lean on. So so we're not resistant to the change because many changes are going to bring about a positive end result. Now, I understand that some will bring about a negative, um, but, but many will, will bring about a positive if you can get past the initial implementation and, and the challenge that that implementation might uh, might incur. So so what we've done is we've said, okay, so if, if it's not about resistance to change, it's about being resistant to that inconvenience, we've said we need to understand and better be able to explain what it is that we are resistant to. And so how we uh, have defined it in, in the book, and it's in, it's in the second half of the book on the science, is, is to say that it is, in fact, a a resistance to removing objects that we have become attached to. So let's say, for example, that I'm attached to a particular uh, technology, a mm-hmm. particular software program in my office, and they announce that they're going to upgrade that technology. Well, I'm not resistant to the upgrade. What I'm resistant to is the unknown, the uncertainty that exists between where I am right now and where I'm going to be with that new upgrade. And so they integrate it, they implement it, and they try to support me um, to help me be educated or trained or feel uh, communicated with or coached, whatever it is that I might need as an individual or an individual within a a bigger department, I might need to not feel that that, uh, sense of loss of attachment that I would uh, if... If, if they didn't do those things to support me. So in essence, we say, okay, so here, here we are. We're not really resistant to change. We're resistant to the, the idea or the inconvenience that change often brings about. And if we can support our employees during that period of that perceived resistance, however you want to define it, then the outcome on the other end is going to be a much more positive result because we've recognized what it is, in fact, that they're resistant to. We've supported them to try to get in front of that resistance, and then we come out on the other end with hopefully a better process or product um, for the organization. Does does that make sense as a starting place? That does make great sense. And it was that concept of the inconvenience, the sense of loss for the old object that I found so fascinating because I always focused on the new object. Not the inconvenience, not the loss, but the look forward. And so when I saw that premise in your book, I found that incredibly fascinating. And then as I reflect back on my personal experience, I found that I could very much relate to it as well. It just never occurred to me to think of it in those terms. I think it's interesting, Nathan, that you that you so quickly keyed in on that. And as a manager and a leader in 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 different organizations, I think we often don't, um, we miss that. And that's what a lot of the change management literature is missing. They they mark this off as the idea that we're resistant to change and that we just need to get our employees on board and they'll come with us. Well, that's unrealistic. 
right? Because that's mm-hmm. not what the whole, that's not the problem. <laughs> so if right. you're trying to fix something that isn't the problem in the first place, no wonder we still experience change initiatives that, that fail at a rate, you know, close to, to 70%. So it's it's very interesting that, that you picked that up so quickly, and that's the piece that is our unique contribution um, to the to the, the change management literature is that, in fact, is that we're saying that it isn't about looking forward. And I know that's contrary to what we are always telling um, folks inside of organizations is to look forward and to be visionary. But that isn't right now. We need to understand where our employees are as they approach the change, and we need to figure out how to help support them through that loss instead of pushing them to just move on because they need to mourn it just like you do in a grieving process. Thinking about that, Victoria, how does that sense of loss manifest itself in the employee's behavior? And that is a great question. And typically what we see is decreased morale. Um, We have a set of symptoms that we typically look for in terms of what that that behavior might look like, and, and it's not always a decrease. It could be an increase. So so we're, we look at morale. We look at productivity. We look at conflict. We look at motivation, absenteeism, and turnover. And I'll tell you, Nathan, my favorite or most interesting, maybe is a better way to say it, of the six symptoms is often that concept of absenteeism because absenteeism can manifest itself in the form of being at work but being um, psychologically or emotionally checked out. So you're there, so no one is marking you down as absent, but you're not really completing your day-to-day work task with the same level of uh, performance that you would have prior to the change. So um, so it's, it's those six symptoms that we look for in terms of trying to determine how those individuals are dealing with that loss. Victoria, in that answer, you had said something. And if you don't mind, I'd like just to ask you another question. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. And, and that was, it seemed like you alluded to there could be a positive reaction instead of simply a negative one. Is it possible that, say we're introducing a new software package, that an individual might actually dislike the current software they're using so much that you actually get a positive reaction? That is such a fantastic question, and we've actually seen that twice, and that happened. So, yes, it is It is absolutely positive. And so in the methodology that we use to collect the data to help the organization understand um, how their employees are responding um, to the change, that we've seen it twice be exactly that scenario where they were so dissatisfied, once was with a leader, um, and, and it, and then the second time was with the technology. They were so dissatisfied with the current state of how the organization was functioning that when we made the change, we saw a very positive um, upshoot in, in their, their uh, morale increased, productivity increased. Um, and what we, what we think um, along that same line, Nathan, is mm-hmm. that there's an interesting correlation between understanding at the at the uh, division or departmental level how they're going to respond to the change and something called the Hawthorne studies that you may remember back from 
from your own uh, graduate school where the employees respond because they're being paid attention to it. They're being asked for their opinion. They're being asked to be a part of the process. And so interestingly, um, the correlation in, in a positive symptoms has also, um, there has also been a correlation in, in an uptick and we just love it that the uh, the management and the leadership are taking how we feel into account. So there's an, an aspect of that positive uh, response or that positive result is probably a better way to say it, um, that is also attributed to just being a part of the solution. Does that make sense? That makes great sense. That does make great sense to me. And it's interesting that you found several instances where you had a positive response. In my personal life, right now at work, we are anticipating a software change out that I know many members of the organization are looking forward to. And I have a feeling that uh, I could add a third case to your list here in, in the next couple of months. So Yeah, that'd be fantastic. <laughs> yeah. That'd be fantastic. <laughs> Victoria, I think we've started to talk about this a bit already, but I wanted to ask about a specific relationships between individual behaviors to change and the correlated organizational outcomes. Is there a matchup there? And, and if so, could you describe those for us? Absolutely. And what's interesting, Nathan, is that the way that we eventually associated those correlations, um, it wasn't so so in research, you always have an intended outcome. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the identifying the organizational behaviors, that was our intended outcome. We didn't necessarily set out to identify the strategies that you need to integrate into your process in order to get in front of those behaviors. But that was an outcome. It just happened that over the course of collecting data for 11 years, we saw a pattern developing. And so, yes, we have um, been able to identify areas that correlate with those behaviors. And so what we can say to you then is, okay, let's say, for example, you've already got a change methodology in place. Well, what, what our tool does is it identifies maybe where you need to focus your attention. Maybe you don't need as much education and training or communication exercises or individual coaching as you might have worked into your initial change strategy. But instead, you might need more focus on enhanced leadership and sponsorship. You might need more focus on job satisfaction and commitment. And so what we do is we help the change agents, and they can be both internal and external, identify those behaviors, the morale, productivity, conflict, motivation, absenteeism, and turnover. And then we show, we demonstrate or show you how, okay, so if morale is a problem, then you need to go look at the leadership sponsorship. And we've seen an unequivocal correlation between the behaviors and our suggested um, mitigation strategy. Now, that doesn't mean that I know which order to put them in <laughs> or okay. or what how to you know create an entire methodology out of this that that's not what it's designed to do it's designed to help you refine and pinpoint areas of weakness in your change strategy so that you get in front of them before they ever become a problem Victoria in your book you presented a tool that you've developed called the loss of effectiveness index that quantitatively measures employees' response to change. Would you tell us a bit of, about the tool itself 
and then how it helps leaders to more effectively deal with their changes. Sure, Nathan, and that's a, a great segue from what we were just talking about. So the, the idea behind the low index is we realized back about seven years ago that we had created an incredible theory, but then in the absence of being able to measure it, Mm -hmm. Um, It wasn't going to do organizations much good. It would be fantastic for for academic research, but it wasn't going to be practical. And that's where we wanted to to bridge that gap between the theory and then the practical application. And so we created something we call the, the Low Loss of Effectiveness Index. And that index measures those six symptoms I mentioned uh, on the previous question the morale, productivity, conflict, motivation, absenteeism, and turnover. And it measures those six symptoms. And then we look at those and we can see through the 54 questions, and it takes about 12 to 14 minutes to complete, we can see where an entire department or entire division or even an entire organization, depending on how we break up um, the demographic uh, information, see how an entire organization is preparing for or dealing with a specific change initiative. And it's fantastic because that quantitative metric, that analytic tool that we have created and we give that information to the leadership, then provides them with um, hard numbers to base the decision on for their change strategy. So there is no guesswork oh, I think that the accounting department is going to respond very positively to this, but the IT department might have a real challenge. There's no more guesswork, and there's it's, it's no longer um, based on interviews where, where people might not be as forthcoming as they can be when you give them the ability to participate in an anonymous um, analytic assessment that will help identify the, the challenges or the weaknesses um, as you approach your change strategy. D- does that does that make sense? That makes great sense. And I saw that as being an incredibly powerful tool. As a consultant myself, I felt like so often when I was conveying to a client where their change management challenges were going to be, not only was I thinking of you know, the future state to go forward and not thinking about the inconvenience and loss, but really the advice I was providing them was based on a very highly subjective framework or or model that I had developed over time in working with other organizations. So my guess was that you'll have resistance in IT or HR or or wherever else in the organization was purely subjective based on my past experience. And this tool, like you said, provides leaders with the actual – quantitative data on their organization. So we we get rid of a lot of the subjectivity, and now they have something that's very specific to them to work with. And you know, Nathan, that's a fantastic point that you just said. And you don't necessarily want to get rid of all the subjectivity, but this allows you to validate whether or not you've gotten honest (laughs) answers (laughs) or not. And I mean, it's just, it it is what it is, right? We don't necessarily want people, our associates, our colleagues, and certainly not our supervisors, to know where we may have challenges or struggles as it comes to dealing with the change. We may not be willing to put that out there. And this tool gets at that information without putting anybody's um, 
uh, without hanging anybody out to dry, if you will, because everything is anonymous. And so we're getting a picture based on, on the collective of, again, a division, a department, or the entire organization. However, um, it is decided that that uh, demographic information needs to be divided up. And that leads me into my next question. So as I think of behavioral response to change, I think of it as a very individualistic reaction, something that's unique person to person. And so as I read your book, what came to mind time and again was if the behavioral response is individual unique or individually specific, does my change management plan have to be focused on each individual? Because I could imagine leaders from organizations of any appreciable size might feel a little overwhelmed with the concept of having a change management program tailored to an individual. Right. And and we've done some work with organizations that had um, upwards of 10,000 employees. And so mm-hmm. in that uh, scenario, it's almost impossible to be able to accommodate the individual needs of all 10,000 plus or minus um, employees. So what we do is we work with the leadership or the change agent to create demographics that will divide up that population based on um, division or department or geographic location or the language that you might speak, um, all different kinds of demographic criteria, and then we collect the data based on that demographic information. So we don't go down to the individual level. We go down to however um, tight the demographic information is. So we can, again, we can pull it down pretty close. And if you see uh, an individual even if it is uh, across a 10,000-person organization in a particular department that may seem to be having a particular struggle, it's very unusual for that individual to be all by him, him or herself, right? It's right. usually more of a collective feeling that no one's willing to put out there, again, because they don't want to be seen as the one who's, who's the change naysayer. Let me, with that, let me tell you a quick example. Mm-hmm. So. We did some work with a large medical facility in at the end of 2010-2011, and they were integrating or upgrading an electronic medical record system. At this particular facility, they had an EMR system, but it was no longer going to be supported, um, so they decided to go ahead and make the jump to a totally new system. The organization as a whole did very well. They had a great education and training program and the employees felt very supported. Our low index scores were very much what we would expect. So establishing the baseline about uh, a month or six weeks, sometimes we do that as far out as, as six months, but we established the baseline before the change is implemented and then shortly after the implementation, we take another low index measure to see, make sure that what we uh, put in place, we being the change agents at that organization, what they put in place mm-hmm. to help those employees was actually working. And then we did it again four months later to make sure everything had returned back to somewhere close to the baseline. 
what we saw was that the organization as a whole did exactly that. So they had their baseline score, they popped up, because the higher the low index score means the more dysfunctional the organization. And then four months later, they had come back down at um, very close to their baseline score, which meant it had normalized and that the change was you know, successful, if you will, in terms of its acceptance. However, there was one group of employees, and it was the floor nurses at this medical facility mm-hmm. that were, had a continuing, um, it was, their low index score was continuing to go up. And what, we, what that told me is that there was something unique going on among those employees. And so I said to the change consultant, please go ask questions, go find out, go sit in, go to lunch with these folks. You need to find out what's going on beneath the surface because their low index score is inconsistent with the rest of the organization. And what they found out was that there was indeed a problem with the new technology that the floor nurses were unwilling to disclose because they didn't want to seem like they were changed naysayers because there had been such a big deal made about, you know, the implementation and the change. They didn't want anybody to know that there was a fundamental flaw in the way the program was collecting information. So they didn't tell anybody. And okay. they were just collecting what they needed to, um, to document by hand. So they had gone back to paper records and hadn't told anyone. Yeah, it was crazy. So now we've got this low index score that's continuing to go up. The consultants found out that that there was a problem that they didn't want to say anything about. The consultants went to the IT folks and had the problem resolved within a week. So it was a very easy fix. It was just a matter of someone being willing to come forward and say, hey, this doesn't work right for our you know, for our system or our process. And, you know, if we hadn't been a part of the process and hadn't been doing the low index scores, you know, Nathan, I can't tell you how long it might have been before anybody came forward and sure. said, it doesn't work. <laughs> Absolutely. So. And, and the problem would have just compounded itself over time. <laughs> exactly. And, and exactly. The, so. I would assert the technology problem would have been the least of their concerns. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's a really good example of how we use it and how it can increase effectiveness um, significantly. That is a great example. Thank you. Victoria, knowing that the individual sense of loss is going to drive a resistance to change, what actions do you recommend that leaders do to prepare their organization to overcome that resistance? Nathan, I think that is an enormous question. I'm not even going to say it's a great question (laughs) because I think it's just so huge. Um, I think that we need as leaders and managers and organizations to first realize that that, um, what is the true origin of resistance? Where is it coming from? And then if we can understand where it's coming from and where the needs are of our employees inside that organization in terms of transitioning from the old to the new in the most successful um, way possible, uh, I think that is truly um, should be the goal of any change um, leader or organizational manager out there that is trying to implement a change is to create a process or a methodology that takes into account the origin of resistance, of the true origin of resistance, and some method of supporting those employees as they transition um, from the old to the new so that you maximize 
the possibility that you're going to have an incredibly successful change implementation. That would be that would be my response to a very huge question, and that may not be um, that may be a small response, but it, it's not. It, it's a big issue and a big challenge. And I think if we can first start by understanding again the origin of the problem, I think that we can have a much better probability of success um, for the outcome. Thank you, and, and that was a rather enormous question. <laughs> to help our readers, too, with the answer, besides our discussion tonight, I'm going to put a link that accompanies the article to this podcast directly to your website so they can go and, and look at the resources you have there. And, of course, if they'd like, they can contact you directly via your website. That's right. That's right. And, and we have a contact page uh, available on the website, and, and, that, uh, and we also have – my my uh, email address is listed on our blog page, and as well as my my uh, business partner's email address is also listed. So we would be um, welcome any questions uh, that might come up from the, your listeners and your audience. Great. Well, thank you, and Victoria, thank you for taking your time to share your insights with us on effectively managing organizational change. I'd also like to let our audience know that I really got a lot out of your book. I particularly appreciated what, what I have come to call Section 1, which is a business novel that so clearly illustrates all of the concepts that you've talked about this evening. And then that's complemented by Section 2, in which you give all of the background and the science behind the concepts that you present in the opening business novel. You know, I sincerely hope that our listeners will pick up a copy of The Pivot Point and, more importantly, that they'll implement the change management methods that you've shared so to help their organizations move more quickly to a state of high post-change performance. So, Victoria, thank you again very much for joining us. Thank you again. I really appreciate the opportunity, Nathan, and I appreciate the opportunity to share The Pivot Point with all of your audience. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this special edition of the Strategy Driven Podcast. I would like to personally thank Victoria Grady for being with us today and sharing her insights on effectively managing organizational change. As always, we would appreciate receiving your feedback by email at podcast at strategydriven.com. If you enjoyed the show, please consider visiting our website at www.strategydriven.com and rating us on iTunes. You can find more information about Victoria Grady and The Pivot Point at www.pivotpnt.com. Until next time, so long.